I probably get through about four or five verses. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we pray for clarity of thought this morning. We know that you would take the word and accomplish what you desire to accomplish. Bless your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week in studying Psalm 18, we saw how much David loved God, how much he trusted his God, and how much God loved David himself. God had set his love upon David, had chosen him Malthus, taking care of sheep, and since he had placed his love upon, love upon David, he intervened drastically, dramatically, I should say, on David's behalf and gave him victory over his enemies. I better get to my right notes here. And you notice, remember from last week, that David did not take uh, credit for the victory to God. He gave all the credit to God for strengthening him and enabling him to have victory over his enemies. Let me read verses 20 through 25. I think it is here this morning. Begin. I won't read the whole passage again. David's writes, verse 20, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I kept the ways of the Lord and not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. I'm sure some of you are saying, really? How can David write such things? How can he make such claims? There have been several attempts to explain what David said here. I heard one man say that David is bragging upon himself and he's comparing himself to Saul and his enemies. And compared to Saul and to David's enemies, David is a pretty righteous guy. I don't think that flies. Nowhere in scripture are we told to compare ourselves with other people. I can't look at Bill and say, well, I'm better than Bill. Bill's probably better than me now. <laughs> but we are not to compare ourselves with other people. We may compare ourselves with ourselves, examine our lives and see if I'm growing in the Lord, if I'm growing in my faith, but never compare ourselves to other people. So I don't buy that argument that David is bragging about himself and comparing himself to Saul and his enemies. Others say that David wrote this psalm or sang this psalm before his sin with Bathsheba. I have a problem with that because this psalm is also in 2 Samuel 22 and it's placed at the end of David's reign and very specifically David says, after you've given me victory over my enemies. So it's almost if it's at the end of his reign. And David is looking back in time. And besides that, even if it was before Bathsheba, does that absolve David of all his sin? You could argue that David's sins were more reprehensible than Saul's sins. So I, again, I don't buy that argument either. Another one I heard was that David wasn't speaking literally. 
such that when he says I was blameless, he meant, well, I was really gave it all my effort. I don't think so. You don't have to be a literary genius to read what David says, and it's pretty plain what he says. He's claiming righteousness, blameless, and guilt not being guilty. So the problem is not what David says, but the problem is how can he say it? You recall that Samuel sent, or I'm sorry, God sent Samuel to, to uh, Saul. And he said to Saul, because you've not obeyed me, you remember he disobeyed because Samuel said to Saul, you wait seven days until I come, and then we'll offer the sacrifice. Well, he waited seven days, but he didn't wait until, Saul, until Samuel came. And he says to uh, Samuel, Saul, Saul said to Samuel, I forced myself. <laughs> I forced myself to disobey. And in that response, Samuel said to Saul, your kingdom will not continue. God has taken the kingdom away from you and he's given it to a man after his own heart. What in the world does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me read a few verses from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, This, says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then let's skip down to verses 18 through 22. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord, God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord. Because of your promise and accord in your own heart, you have brought all this greatness to make your servant know it. 
Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Let me suggest to you that proper understanding of a man after God's own heart is the place that David had in God's heart and not the place that God had in David's heart. The life of David will challenge that idea, that David was so full of God, he never did wrong. They always obeyed. So I suggest to you the proper understanding of that is the place that David had in God's heart, not the place that God had in David's heart. The wonder of it all is not that David loved God, but that God loved David. That one phrase, David said, you know your servant, O Lord, and yet he loved him. In 2 Samuel, and the same is true of us, the same is true of us, it makes perfect sense that we should love the Lord. What is scandalous, and I used to not like that term when referring to God's grace, but I looked the word up. A scandal most often is something negative, but it can also mean something that's surprising, something that's unexpected. So God's grace is scandalous. It's unexpected. He didn't respond to us because we loved him. He responded to us because he loved us. In his mercy and grace, he loved us. So just like Dave, uh, the Lord loved David, so God loves us. And it's, that's the miracle. That's the wonder of that God would love us in spite of who we are. You remember in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan comes to David and tells him a story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had several flocks and herds. And the poor man had one little ewe lamb. One, I should say ewe. That's being redundant, ewe lamb. <laughs> he had one little ewe that says he used to eat at the table with him and sat in his bosom and used to drink from his cup. And the rich man decided to make a meal for his visitor. He had a visitor come. And rather than take one of his many flocks, one as many heard, I should say. He took the poor man, you, slew it, and used that for the meal. And David got angry. David said, that man shall die and pay fourfold for what he's done. And what did Nathan do? You're the man, David. That must have hit David like a thunderbolt. You know, David could have responded in another way than what he did. He could have thought, you know, I'm the only one who knows what I've done. And Nathan's the only other one. Nobody else in my kingdom knows. So he could have summarily said, take Nathan and have him killed. The problem with that is, God was informing another prophet and another prophet and another. But David didn't respond like that. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. So David confessed his sin. So this is, Amazing grace. And the other thing that Nathan said to David was, God has put your sin away. You shall not die. How is that right? How can God put David's sin away? When David was informed of his sin, turn to Psalm 51. 
it says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And in this verse, be careful how you read it. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He doesn't say, restore to me my salvation. He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. See, I believe it's true that, I don't believe as a Christian, you can lose your salvation. If that were possible, I would lost my salvation hundreds and hundreds of times. And you too. <laughs> I'm not in this by myself. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. And I don't believe they can lose their salvation in the Old Testament either. God never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If I can't lose my salvation today, I, you couldn't lose your salvation in the Old Testament as well. So we come back to the question, how is it right? How is it right that Nathan could say to David, God has put your sin away? I listened to, I watched an interview this morning about a woman who wasn't married and got pregnant, had an abortion. Got pregnant a second time, unmarried, had another abortion. And she said, I thought God was done with me. I had killed two babies. I thought there was no way God could have anything to do with me again or anymore. But miraculously, she came to know the Lord. And she had a third child out of wedlock. But in that time, she came to know the Lord. And the Lord provided her husband, and now she's happily married. So God's grace is abundant. The song says, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Not some of our sin. Greater than all of our sin. In Psalm 32, David says, verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. A guilty conscience can be a devastating thing. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, God will not allow you 
to live in sin and not bring you under conviction. If you can sin without being convicted about it, you better check your relationship with the Lord. Because he doesn't let his children go without trying to draw them back. Wilbur Warren Wiersbe said, Chastening isn't a judge punishing a criminal. It's a loving father dealing with his disobedient children to bring them willingly to the place of surrender. So we need to answer the question, how can God do away with our sin, with David's sin? It's a puzzling question, isn't it? I, uh, and I hope my thoughts are clearer than they were earlier this week. I got a text Wednesday night. I didn't see it till Thursday morning. And somebody sent me a picture of an A-coil. That's what you go with, puts in your furnace for air conditioning. And the text said, can you get a condensing unit to match this coil? And I thought it said, Hamer says he can find one. And how much will it cost to put it in? Well, Hamer's Tim's dad, and they were down in Texas visiting. So I wrote back, I texted back, I said, told him how much I would charge to put it in, but I have no idea how much it would cost in Texas. The guy wrote back and says, what Texas got to do with it? <laughs> so I looked at the text again. It said, instead of saying Hamer, it said Harmon. Dave Harmon's guy that works at West Waterford. I buy my stuff. So I was a little confused. <laughs> I thought they were going to put an air conditioner for Hamer down in Texas this week. But. So you remember when Jesus rose from the dead? And he walked with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it says in Luke 27 that taking the scriptures, he explained himself to them. What scriptures did, was Jesus speaking from? The Old Testament. You know, when we say that the Bible, including the Old Testament, is a story about Jesus, it's not just a quaint saying. It's the truth. The word of God is a, is a story about Jesus. So those who lived in the Old Testament time, they look forward to the death of Christ on the cross and the benefits of that, while we in the New Testament era look back to what Christ did. They look forward to what Christ would do. We look back to what Christ has done. They never saw him, and we never saw him either. But we look back on what Christ has done for us, and they look forward. There has ever only been one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You know what the mediator is, don't you? A mediator is the only one who goes between different parties. In our case, it's the mediator between us and God. And God sent his son Jesus to become our mediator, to become our righteousness. And the only way we can be reconciled to God is for God's wrath to be satisfied and our hearts, which are at enmity with God, be changed. Christ did that on the cross. He satisfied God's wrath, and through his blood, shed blood on the cross, our hearts could be changed so we can be reconciled with God. That there's only one, ever been one way of salvation, Paul settles that in Romans chapter 4.
what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. It's true to you and I. We may boast about our lives, but it does no good to boast about our lives before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness they had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Salvation has always been by faith in Christ and Christ alone. So, David is able to write what he said about being blameless, without guilt, because he's looking forward to what Christ would do on the cross. David can say, you've dealt with me according to my righteousness, because when we become a Christian, what do we receive? We receive the righteousness of Christ. So God looks at when he looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness in us. It's not our own righteousness. It's a righteousness which is imputed to us. It's a righteousness we cannot earn. It's a righteousness we cannot buy. It's a righteousness we cannot make ourselves worthy of. God in his love, because of the death of his son on the cross, imputes Christ's righteousness to us. We can't improve upon it. We can't be any better, more righteous in that regard than the first day we were saved. There is a horizontal righteousness, the righteousness I have from Christ, from, but there's a horizontal righteousness as well, and that is, that requires my effort. That requires me to grow in my faith, to become more and more obedient. Am I more obedient today than when I became a Christian? Do I know my Lord and God better than when when I became a Christian? Am I growing in my faith? Am I being more obedient? So there's a horizontal righteousness which is given to us, imputed to us because of Christ's death. But there's a horizontal righteousness which requires effort on our part. So God gives us this righteousness of Christ and he justifies us. Justification is that act by which God declares us righteous. That act by which God declares us righteous. Some have said justification is just like we've never sinned. Well, that doesn't go far enough. If it, is, if it only meant like I'd never sinned, then I would be like Adam. They were innocent. But I actually have righteousness. I actually have God's righteousness in me, dwelling within me.
In Romans, Paul says, who shall lay a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And our, I can't think of the word I want to use, the fact that we will not lose our salvation is the fact that God will keep us in, in this life from losing our salvation, from uh, apostatizing, what I want to say. So let me ask you a question in closing. When God looks at you, what does he see? Does he see someone who's been cleansed and forgiven? That's how he dealt with David. He dealt with David as one who was cleansed and forgiven. That's how David could write what he wrote. And we need to be cleansed and forgiven as well through Christ's blood and his shed blood on the cross. So what are you trusting in today? Are you trusting in your own righteousness? Are you trusting in God's righteousness? There are any number of people, any number of ways that would lead you away from Christ. But in the end, they will all disappoint you. Everything will disappoint you. We have no right to stand before God in our own righteousness. We only have the right to stand before God because we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. So how does God see you this morning? In Christ? Or outside of Christ? And if you're outside of Christ, I pray that you come to know him as your Lord and Savior today. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Pray that you would take and use it and, as, and bless in the way it needs to be blessed. We ask the thing in Jesus' name. Amen. I stand together and we'll sing the chorus.